Well, if you're here and you would like prayer for anything, we want to invite you to come. We'd love to pray with you. Is there anybody? You're sick, you're suffering, great, small, whatever the need may be. For a little though. His asthma is real bad. He has what I had last week. Okay. All right. Father, we lift Bo up to you right now. Father, we pray you touch him, you heal him. In the name of Jesus, Lord, just comfort him. Give him your peace. And Father, we just... Uh, Expect a full recovery quickly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Anybody else for anything? Sure. Come. Is everything? So it's not. Okay. So we need things to heal properly. Heal the right way. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for little Benjamin here. Father, touch him and heal him. Lord, you created this body. You created everything about it. Lord, you know how it's supposed to function. And we just pray, Father God, that you would bring healing to this little man. Lord, heal him. Lord, make everything 
work the way it's supposed to work, heal the way it's supposed to heal. Father, I pray peace over these parents, and I just thank you for this little life and the gift and the blessing it is. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Anybody else? Anyone else? All right, let's pray for the, the other needs of our church. church please bow your heads father we want to pray for complete healing for Nadine Ardela James Benjamin Greg Mike and Jan father we also want to pray for the relatives and the friends of the ones in our congregation Dorothy Lamone Wally Adam and Grace Father, we pray for Miss Bussie and Uncle Lloyd, who are homebound. Lord, we pray for our expecting mothers, Marley, Hannah, and Kelly. Father, we pray for the marriages in our congregation, that you would strengthen our families and give grace and wisdom. We pray for Vanessa's complete healing, and that she would continue growing stronger. We pray for peace and rest and salvation for Virginia, and for all involved to experience God's sovereign grace. Father, we pray for our congregation, our elders, Jeff Ripple, Roland Rao, that God would glorify himself through us, that he would keep us humble and faithful and zealous. Father, we pray for the churches in Taylor with their local ministries, and specifically for Shepherd's Heart, Hope House, and Serve Taylor After School, that as one body, we would stand united upon love and truth and boldly proclaim the gospel of God's sovereign grace as laborers seeking a, f- a harvest. We pray for our missionaries, Katana, Jeff, Brandon, Alan, and Pat, along with their families, that God would keep them faithful and kingdom focused. We'll also pray for the regions they serve, that the people would be receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for those in our lives who are lost, that God would convict them of their sin and soften their hearts to his grace and goodness. We pray for our governing authorities, local to federal, that God would grant repentance, that they would diligently and humbly submit to the word of God, and that he would give wisdom as they govern us. Pray that God would end abortion. Father, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters that you would keep them faithful and that their suffering would bear much fruit and glorify him, that you would rise and his enemies would be scattered. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
If you lead me, Lord, I will follow where you
I will go. I will go. Amen. You may turn and greet someone around you and be seated. I didn't have nobody pulling my leg this morning. I missed you, James. It's time for our uh, New City Catechism. We can get that up there. So last week's question, uh, kids, if y'all help me read everything in blue. What does God require in the fourth and fifth commandments? Fourth, that on the Sabbath day we spend time in worship of God. Fifth, that we love and honor our father and mother. Thank you. Uh, this week's question, we'll read the answer together. What does God require in the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments? Six, that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. Seventh, that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life, avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts, or desires, and whatever might lead to them. Eighth, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else, nor withhold any good from someone we might benefit. Thank you. Um, I did want to update you guys on, we've been praying for Vanessa and Virginia, which is a friend of Bennett and Catherine's, or Catherine specifically. Um, so Virginia is the mom, and Vanessa is the little girl who um, had trisomy 18, has trisomy 18, and she did actually just have heart surgery on Friday. Um, so that is good news. She's kind of been having some complications from that. They were wondering if she was having an infection or not. So she's obviously still admitted in the hospital, and they're monitoring her and making sure that she's in stable condition. And Virginia, the mom, is actually having a lot of health issues as well, and she's kind of putting her health on the back burner to make sure that her baby girl is taken care of. So if you guys would just pray for Virginia's health as well. She's not sleeping very much, and so that doesn't help anything either. But we have two ladies here that need a lot of prayer um, that have beat a lot of odds already. Um, but if you guys would, you know, when you're praying, would you, if you would think about that and just pray for that specifically. Um, another baby announcement we had. One of our pregnant mamas delivered this week. Um, his name is Griffin, baby boy Griffin. He, he's not here, obviously, today. He was born on Thursday, so Morgan and Jeff are home with their two kiddos now. Um, if anybody would like to take a meal to them, we can arrange that. Just let me know. Um, this Friday is our Friday Fellowship, so we are going over chapters 5 and 6. Ladies and guys and kiddos and everyone in between are welcome. Um, so we'll be talking about chapters five and six. If you haven't read them yet, you still have time. You have a week left to catch up. 
or if you don't have a book and you just want to come and drink coffee and discuss with us that is great too so we'll do that and yes thank you we are having a cookout fire going so um, if you want to bring something kebabs or meat or sausage or whatever you want to throw on the fire please do that you are welcome to bring your family and friends um, so just make sure you do that Yes, you can come early. So come around 5.30, 6 o'clock. Um, our book club starts at 7, so we can eat a little bit before, bring some sides or whatever food you want to eat. Um, or if you don't want to eat with us, then you can just come at 7. We won't be mad at you, I promise. Um, but that is what we will be doing on Friday. And I think that is all. Wednesday night we have our normal psalm reading, so you guys can meet us next door for that. Um, and then we have our classes at 9.15, as we've been doing for a month and a half. Next Sunday night is going to be a first for Taylor. The Taylor Area Minister Alliance is going to do a Passion Sunday service. It's going to be Sunday evening at 6. It's going to be similar to the Thanksgiving service we do annually. Uh, we're asking people to bring uh, non-perishable food items. We're going to receive an offering that will benefit uh, food pantry. But this will be a community worship service 6 p.m. at St. Paul Lutheran Church. This next Sunday, next Sunday, the 20th. the 20th. Okay, so not no, Easter no. Sunday, the weekend before. Okay, yep, so we'll remind you again next Sunday about that. Um, I think that is all, so we will not meet and greet. We will have our tithe and offering now. <coughs> be great to have a, a good turnout next Sunday. We don't do a lot of community worship services, and we thought it would be um, a great opportunity to add another one on the calendar, just give the body of Christ in our community a chance to come together. I want to I encourage you from the scripture from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. <laughs> as we get ready to worship the Lord through our giving. Really, the whole chapter, the whole chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians has to do with giving. Kind of touched on it last week. This is where Paul is encouraging the churches to receive offerings, uh, to take up offerings for the saints. And... I want to just draw your attention to verses 6 and 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Uh, let me begin in verse 5, because it's better to get more context here. Paul writes in verse 5, Therefore, he's telling him, don't be negligent to do this. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So he's encouraging the, them to give as a matter of generosity, not as a matter of grudging obligation. But this I say... He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Verse 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. God is able to make all grace abound to you, all sufficiency abound to you, all provision abound to you. And so here's kind of a, a principle that sometimes we might miss. So we talk about the tithe and we see the tithe in Genesis. We see the tithe in the law of Moses. Uh, Jesus talked about the tithe, the Pharisees tithe down to the very number of mint leaves from their gardens. And Jesus said, this is right, but don't leave the weightier things undone. And other justice, mercy, uh, compassion, don't leave that undone. Do that. It's right that you tithe. It's right that you tithe on everything. He said, that's good, but don't do that leaving the other things undone. And so now we come to this principle where Paul says, but let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Some people say, well, tithe doesn't apply anymore in the New Testament. Well, here's the principle of giving that we see. We saw it with the woman. Remember, we looked at the widow sitting at the treasury, and she gave everything she had. Paul says, purpose in your heart to give. How? Generously. So if you want to use a 10% figure and say, okay, that's my ceiling or that's my floor. You know, in the old covenant, that was the minimum that was required. The Bible says everything belongs to the Lord. And Paul writes this and he says, God loves a cheerful giver. God can cause his grace to abound to you. God can cause all sufficiency to abound to you, all provision to abound for you. And so what's the exhortation here? Paul is saying, don't Give stingily because you're fixated on your lack. Paul says, give generously and fix your eyes on God who has all grace and can cause all grace to abound towards you so that you have sufficiency in all things. That's why giving is an act of worship and giving is an act of faith. Because when we give, we are declaring that we're trusting that God is our provider. And that God is not limited to the things we limit him to. God's not limited to your bank account or my bank account. God's not limited to to what I can see, what I can imagine. God is sufficient to go beyond that. So he gives us this promise here. That if we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully. And that's a truth. Now that doesn't mean that we should be foolish in our giving. It means we should be faithful in our giving. Do you understand the difference? God wants you to be responsible. He wants you to pay your bills. He wants you to be a good witness to those around you. So foolishness would be, I'm going to call the light company this month and tell them, hey, uh, I'm going to give to God instead of to you, trusting that God's going to give me a hundredfold return. I'll pay you next month when that hundredfold return comes in. Now that's foolishness. It's a bad witness too. It's not good stewardship. 
But faithfulness is trusting God even when it seems like I'm challenged. You've heard people say, I don't know how I can afford to give to God. The real question is, how can you afford not to give to God? Because if you truly believe God is your provider, then you must truly trust that he knows how to provide all sufficiency to you. And when you give, don't give grudgingly. Give cheerfully. Give in faith, knowing that God is your provider. And he is pleased to provide for you. Amen? All right, guys, come on up. We're going to get ready to give. To give our gifts and to worship the Lord. And giving us the power and strength to work and earn a living, Father, as this this time that we uh, you uh, receive your tithes and offerings, Father, um, we ask that you would just help us to be to give abundantly and to to be cheerful, cheerful givers, Father. Um, Lord, we pray that you who provides the seed for us sowers to sow and and bread for life, Father, we pray that you would supply and multiply what we've sown today. Lord, that you would increase the fruit of our righteousness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 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 All right, all the little children. Come on, little children. I got a great story for you all today. Anybody have a cow? Y'all have a cow? Who's got a cow? Cow, horse, dog. See this cow? It says property of God. Y'all ever thought about painting that on your cow? Okay. Or your dog or your cat? Maybe you should ask your parents before you do that, though. It might get in trouble. Okay. Our story today is God knows 
all things. Let me read a scripture to you. From Psalm chapter 139, verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. God knows when you sit down. God knows when you rise up. He knows when you go to bed. He knows when you wake up in the morning. God knows all things. There are more stars than anyone can count, but God knows them each by name. A million sparrows flit and fly, but not one can fall outside God's control. God owns the cattle on a thousand hill and sets the limits for the ocean tide. He knows your name, planned where you would live, and could tell you any morning the number of hairs on your head. You believe God can count the hair on my head? (laughs) Whose head do you think is, what does that mean? Oh, (laughs) Whose head, has, whose head would be easier to count, mine or Bubba's? <laughs> well, for God, they're both easy. Because he's God. He knows the exact number of days you will live and how each one of them will go. God knows everything about everything and everything about everybody. Nothing ever surprises him and he always knows what to do. God knows what will happen tomorrow, what time you will wake up, what you will eat for breakfast. He has already planned how to use everything in your life for good, even those things we don't want to happen. How can God know all these things? Because he is God, God with a capital G. Psalm 139 verse 4 says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Because God knows all things. So what did you learn today? That's right. God knows all things. All right. Praise God. So we can trust him. We can pray to him. And we can trust that he knows how to work everything out for our good. Right? Yep. All right. Thank you. Cow, that's right. All right. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. So we've been counting down to the cross. Next Sunday will be what we traditionally call Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of the week before the crucifixion of Jesus. So as we've been going through and counting down, we've mostly been in the book of Mark, but today we're going to go to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 22, the first 14 verses. Now let me, set, let me set the stage here for you. So we were in Mark 11. In Mark 11, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And in Mark 11, we see two days represented. We see that first day Jesus goes in and he clears the temple 
Remember, he curses the fig tree, he goes in and he clears the temple, then he leaves. The next morning, he comes back with his disciples and they see the fig tree that had been cursed and it's dead, it's withered and dead. And then Jesus goes on into the temple and he begins to teach. And as Jesus begins to teach, when Jesus comes back into the temple, the Pharisees meet him, the leaders meet him, and they say, by whose authority do you do these things? By whose authority did you drive out the money changers and the sellers? By whose authority did you block the pathway through the court of the Gentiles? By whose authority are you doing all of these things? And Jesus asked them a question. His answer was a question. He said, if you'll tell me by whose authority John baptized, I'll tell you by whose authority I do what I do. And they all huddle together and they say, oh, oh, that's tough because we didn't like John very much, but the people loved him. And if we say John's baptism wasn't from heaven, the people are going to rebel against us. And if we say John's baptism was from heaven, then we've just admitted our disobedience. So they say, so we can't answer his question. So they come back to Jesus and they say, we don't know by whose authority John baptized. We don't know where his baptism came from. Jesus said, then neither will I tell you by whose authority I do the things that I do. And then Jesus begins to teach. And this is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is teaching in the temple. Now, Jesus taught a lot of things, and we don't have time in these weeks to cover everything, so I'm just covering selective things. And today, I selected Matthew 22 and the parable of the wedding feast. And so let's read Matthew chapter 22. Jesus has had his authority challenged by the leaders. And why did they challenge his authority? They challenged his authority because Jesus inherently challenged their authority. Jesus had authority by his Father to do what he did. What Jesus knew and what these leaders knew is that they did not truly have authority to do what they did. They were in rebellion against God. And the life and the ministry of Jesus exposed their sin and exposed their rebellion. And this is why they had to kill Jesus. They had to get rid of him because he was disrupting their system. And so Jesus here is in the temple. He's teaching. Let's, let's read these verses. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their way one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. 
Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was, that is the man without the garment, was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness where will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So we're going to go verse by verse through this parable and look at this. Because I think it's a, as, as everything Jesus said and all of his parables are important. And so let's look at this. Let's look at the very beginning of this. Look at verse 2. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like... So what we see here is that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. This is a parable. It's what verse 1 says. He began to teach them with this parable. And he says the parable is a parable about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean the kingdom of heaven is exactly this. It's like. The kingdom of heaven is like. This is a parable of the kingdom. The phrase it is like means that Jesus is using language and painting word pictures to convey spiritual truths about the kingdom for those who have ears to hear. He's not giving a chronological or detailed accounting of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Some people take this parable and they say, this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, yes, it is. But it's about the marriage supper of the Lamb within the context of the kingdom. And that's very important for us to understand or we'll get caught up with details and minutiae that will distract us from what Jesus is really trying to get us to grasp here. It's about the kingdom and the inclusion of Jew and Gentile. It's about the kingdom and those who will be saved and brought into the kingdom. So Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds. That God, you would help us not get lost in the details, but you would reveal truth to us. That you would, by your Spirit, Heal us of blindness. Heal us of our deafness. Lord, deliver us from the distractions that would cause us to be drug away, pulled away. Help us, God, to see with seeing eyes and hear with hearing ears the truth that will set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. So the kingdom of heaven is like... What is it like? It's like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So the kingdom of heaven is like this marriage 
not any marriage, but a marriage that a king arranged for his son. The father arranged a marriage for his only begotten son. That is true. Not just the father in this parable, but the father in heaven arranged a marriage for his only begotten son. He arranged that marriage before the foundation of the world. Hold your place there in Matthew chapter 22. Turn over a few chapters to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, if you guys remember when we taught through the book of Genesis, we saw this picture quite frequently. We saw Isaac, Abraham sent his servant to get a bride for Isaac. We saw Jacob go to get a bride. And we see, and we talked about how those were pictures of Christ. Christ came to get for himself a bride. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And why did he do that? He did it according to the good pleasure of his will, because it was the good pleasure of his will to do that. To this end, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So the church is the people of God, and the people of God are the bride of Christ. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5. So while you're there in Ephesians, turn over a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 20, this is, the, this is ladies' favorite part of the Bible where it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Right? It should be men's most fearful part of the Bible because the command to men is, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands, I'm going to tell you right now that should create fear and trembling in you because the ability of your wife to submit to you as unto the Lord is directly proportional to your ability and your willingness to love her as Christ has loved the church. And give yourself for her the way Christ has given himself for the church. Verse 25 through 33, Paul is talking to husbands. But look at verse 30 here. For we are members, he's talking about the body of Christ. We, the body of Christ, male and female. He's not just talking to men, he's talking to believers. We, the believers, male and female. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, black and white, doesn't matter. God's not distinguishing here. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall, be, shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This is a great mystery, Paul writes, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What is Paul talking about when he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives. He's talking about Christ and the church. So let's go back to our parable. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a king who arranged a marriage for his son. The father in heaven before the foundations of the world chose a bride for his only begotten son. And in the fullness of time, Paul writes to us in the book of Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born under the law, born of a woman to redeem us. When did the When did the son of the father come in the fullness of time? When it was time for him to come and fetch his bride, Jesus came to get his bride. Who is that bride? The Bible tells us plainly who the bride of Christ is. The bride of Christ is the church. It is the people of God. It's not a Jewish church. It's not a Gentile church. It's not a male church. It's not a female church. It's not a black church. It's not a white church. It's not a rich church. It's not a poor church. It is a church. It is a chosen generation. It is a royal priesthood. It is a holy nation. It is one man that God created in Christ Jesus so that that people, that body, that bride could be joined to that son and they would become one. And that has happened in Jesus Christ. You are one with Jesus right now if you are born again. If you are by faith trusting in Jesus. As a child of God, you have become one with him. You have become the bride of Christ. So the father arranged this marriage. The people of God are the bride of Christ, the wife of the lamb. We see this in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 and verses 9 and 10. John says, Behold, I saw the holy Jerusalem coming out of heaven, adorned like a bride. The angel says, Come and I will show you the wife of the lamb. And I saw a city. Jesus came, was crucified, buried, and resurrected to become one with his bride, the church, a people called out for his glory. Jesus isn't marrying brick and mortar. Jesus is marrying a people. We are the people of God in Christ Jesus. We are the bride of Christ in Christ Jesus. We have been made one with God in Christ Jesus. This is why God created marriage, and he shows it to us right in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2. God created marriage as a picture in the natural to show us what would ultimately happen spiritually when Christ would come to take his bride, the church. And he would join that bride to himself, and the two would become one. Paul writes it this way in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I have been brought into Christ. I am one with Christ. Christ is my life. 
I died with Christ. I have been raised with Christ. Now the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. Where? In the Son of God. So a certain king arranged a marriage for his son. God the Father arranged this marriage before the foundation of the world. We see this throughout the scripture starting in Genesis when God created Adam from the dust of the earth, but he created Eve from the life and the flesh and the bone of Adam and made woman to be the bride of the man. This is why marriage can only, 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 only be defined as the union of one man and one woman. Because that's what God created in the beginning. And any other redefinition is a lie and a perversion of God's truth. That's not to be mean or narrow-minded or bigoted. That is to stand in the truth of the scripture. Period. So God created Eve from the life of Adam. Just like the church is birthed from the life of Christ. God on purpose didn't use dirt to create Eve because Eve was a picture of the church. And God from the very beginning, with, in the beginning God created, God has been showing us his plan of salvation. The gospel began in Genesis 1.1 and it has been gloriously illustrated for us graphically in detail throughout the Old Testament. Made even more Revealed to us with the commentary brought to us by the New Testament. But the subject matter is the same. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified, buried, and raised up, ascended to the Father. He came to take a bride. And you and I are that bride by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We see Abraham send his servant to get a bride for his son Isaac. We see Isaac. The son of promise, Jacob, go to take a bride. We see from Jacob, God produces 12 tribes. And the seed of promise, Jesus Christ, is born of the tribe of Judah. That's why he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's our Messiah. He's our Savior. Jesus is the promised seed God spoke of to Abraham. Jesus is the promised seed God spoke of in the garden in Genesis 3.15. He spoke the promise to the serpent. He spoke the promise to the man. He spoke the promise to the woman. And he said, you have fallen, but I will send a redeemer. And that redeemer will crush the head of your enemy. He is the promised seed. And that is the seed that men have been looking for. That's the seed that the devil has tried to stomp out and destroy and disrupt and, and keep from coming. But This is why you should not be afraid of the devil because the devil cannot stop the plan of God. The devil can do nothing outside of God's authority. The devil is absolutely under God's control. He is a lawless one, but he cannot operate apart from the authority of God. Don't fear the devil, fear God. Because the Lord is the Lord of Lords. God is the God of gods. God is not a created being. Satan is a created being. He is nothing but a tool and a pawn in the hand of God.
Israel is presented throughout the Scripture as a bride. Israel is presented as an adulterous wife throughout the writings of the prophets. But before the foundation of the world, God had arranged a marriage for his son. Why is Israel presented as an adulterous bride? She is. We talked about covenant day today in Sunday school. Listen, here's the reality. As much as you and I might want to be able to perfectly keep the covenant, we can't do it. We are, by our very nature, covenant breakers. And if the covenant was conditioned upon our ability to keep it, you and I would be long lost. We wouldn't even be here today. If the condition of the covenant was based on you and I, God would have destroyed the world long ago. So we see that throughout God's history, throughout his story, God has made this covenant of grace with man. Why did he put a rainbow in the sky to Noah? Not because he he didn't think man would ever sin again. God knew that man would be every bit as wicked as they were before he destroyed the earth with the flood. But he put the rainbow in the sky as a reminder. The covenant is not based on your ability to keep it. The covenant is based on my promise. And I, God, do not break my promises. So the history of God's people being adulterous is a picture that even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, who remains faithful? God remains faithful. This is why he told Hosea, go marry a prostitute. She will be unfaithful to you. She will be chronically unfaithful to you. But every time she is unfaithful, go and get her, bring her back, dust her off, clean her up, and love her. And when she departs from you again, is unfaithful to you again, because she will, go and get her and bring her back, because this is what I have done with my people who have been chronically unfaithful with me. And if I don't think, and if you don't think, that we have all been chronically unfaithful to God, that he, if you don't think he does not have reason to absolutely walk away from us and leave us, You are mistaken. And the only reason he does not is because he alone is faithful. Now we may attempt to be faithful. We may desire to be faithful and we should attempt to and we should desire to. But when you begin to understand what God demands, you begin to understand that there was only ever one man that could fulfill the demand of God. That man is Jesus Christ. He was the only man that ever walked in sinless perfection. He was the only man that ever kept in totality the law of God. He was the perfect man who became the perfect sacrifice because we are people who live in our imperfection. He was faithful because we are people who are chronically unfaithful. And we have to continuously run back to the mercy of God. And because he is faithful, he continuously receives us and loves us. The history of God's people is pointing us to the bridegroom, Jesus. 
that would come for his bride, the church, made up of both good and bad, Jew and Gentile, male and female, all made one with him. You see this in the parable. He says, go and invite everybody, verse 10, both good and bad, both bad and good. We so want to believe that God only invites the good people in. But Jesus makes it very clear here, no. See, that's your self-righteousness that thinks it's God who invites the good people in and leaves the bad people out. The bad and the good here is a picture of Jew and Gentile, but the reality is we're all bad. And even though we were all bad, God still allowed us to become his bride. Verses 3 through 6, and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. So verses 3 through 6, it says that he sent his servants, they rejected the call. He sent more servants, they rejected the call. They spitefully treated them. They treated them badly. They even killed some of them. And when the king found out that that's what happened, he became furious. Those servants represent the prophets who called God's people back to repentance, who called God's people to turn to God. These are the prophets. These are the men in your Old Testament like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Hosea or Micah or Zechariah, or Zephaniah, or Moses. These are the prophets of God who continuously called God's people. Come to God. Come to God. And yet they rejected him. They rejected the call and even killed his prophets. Verse 7 says that he became furious when the king heard about how they had rejected and spitefully treated and killed his servants. He was furious and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. We know from the scripture and from history that God more than once sent his armies to destroy Jerusalem. In 586 BC, God sent the Babylonians to destroy the city and the temple. His people were carried away captive for 70 years. This was foretold to Israel by God's prophets. God's servants went and said, this will happen if you do not repent. Come to God. Come to God. Turn to God. And they would not listen. And they killed the prophets. And they spitefully and cruelly treated them. Jesus prophesied this same destruction. We see it recorded in Matthew chapter 24. So Jesus here in this parable in verse 7 is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, yet the people hearing don't even realize it. He knows that they will take him. Who is Jesus? He is the son of God. He's not just a prophet. He is the son of God. We see the parable of the, of the vineyard, of the wine press, where, where the owner of the vineyard sends servant after servant. And finally, he says, I know, I'll send my son. Surely they'll be nice to my son. And he sends his son, and what do they do? They kill his son. 
at the end of that parable, Jesus says to the religious leaders, and so it shall be the kingdom shall be taken from you and given to another people. And immediately it says right there, they sought how they might kill Jesus because they didn't like what he had to say. They were fulfilling the very prophecies that Jesus was giving to them. And they didn't care. Jesus prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem here. Just some 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, God sent his armies again, except instead of this time, instead of them being Babylonian, this time they were Roman. And in 70 AD, they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They did exactly what Jesus said. They did not leave one stone standing upon another. Josephus, the great historian who was an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, tells us that when the Romans got through, you couldn't even tell there had been a temple or a city there. The destruction was so complete. And so was fulfilled the prophecy given by Jesus that the temple would be destroyed, the city would be destroyed, and not even one stone to be left upon another. So the servants go out and they are con- commanded to invite any and all they find on the highways and the byways. Now let me ask you this, what kind of people do you think they found along the highways? Not like the ones that were first invited. It didn't matter. If you find rich, invite the rich. If you find poor, invite the poor. If you find the the well-fit, invite the well-fit. If you find the lame, invite the lame. Whoever, whoever, both bad and good, that's what verse 10 says, whoever, Invite them in. So the wedding party is ready. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. The point of this parable is that the invitation to come has gone out to all, both Jew and Gentile. God chose Israel as a picture of grace, not because Israel was different or more righteous than the other nations. You need to understand this. There was nothing better about Abraham than anybody else that lived in Ur of the Chaldees. God chose Abraham because God wanted to choose Abraham. It was grace. And the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, was not more righteous than the other nations. In fact, if you read your Bible, go and read Joshua. Read the book of Joshua, and you will see where God says, You are worse than the nations I'm having you destroy. We want to say, well, God had them destroy those nations because they were so bad, so wicked, so evil. But Israel was just a little bit better. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says Israel was worse. Why were they worse? Because Israel had a knowledge of God and they still rejected God. God says, these nations I'm having you destroy don't even have the same knowledge of me that you do. But they have a knowledge of me. This is why Paul writes in Romans that we are all without excuse. Jew or Gentile. Because we've all been given the witness of God in creation. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. And what's the point? The point is we are all wicked. The point is we're all bad. The point is we're all undeserving. But God calls us anyway. 
God chooses us in spite of that. What distinguishes us from the world is our faith and the God of our faith. He has called us to clothe us and to make us righteous in His Son. As many as you find, invite. That has no condition put on it. As many as you find, invite. And what did the king want to do? The king wanted to fill his banquet hall. So whoever you find to fill it with, fill it. This is the commission to preach the gospel. The call went out to those who were invited and they rejected the call. The call was the command to come now. The banquet, the wedding, it's ready. It wasn't a suggestion When the king calls you, you don't say, sorry, king, let me finish this. uh, Let me finish this uh, movie I I just picked up from Redbox. If I don't get it back by nine, they're going to charge me another day. Hey, can we can we maybe connect tomorrow? Because I'm kind of busy tonight. You know that you don't do that. When the king calls, you come. And when the king calls and when you don't come, You are in direct rebellion and the king has the right to do with you what he wants to. We don't don't comprehend that because we don't like kings. We, We lived under one as a nation and we rebelled against him and said, we don't want to have a king. We want to be in control, which is all fine and good. I'm glad I live in America. But here's the reality Whether you believe you have a king or not, you have a king. His name is Jesus. He is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. He is your king. Whether you know he's your king, he is your king. Whether you know it or not. And he has called you. In fact, he has commanded you to believe in him, to trust in him. And if you rebel against that command, if you reject that command, you will suffer you will suffer. So when the king calls, it's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. And the king called and they rejected. And he made them pay. And he says, now, my servants, now you go out and you call any and every one you find. Forget the original guest list. Now you go out and you just bring everybody in. This is what we are commissioned to do. Go and preach the gospel to every creature, Mark says. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, Jesus commanded his disciples. Not just the Jews, but all the nations, the Gentiles, all the peoples of the world. The gospel call is not a suggestion to believe, it's a command to believe. If we respond in faith to the gospel, we come to God and to his life. If we respond in unbelief and rebellion, we reject the call and destruction is our end. The command to believe, the command to come in faith to God goes out to all without condition, without qualification, and all will respond either in unbelief or in faith. The gospel goes continually. The gospel is going forth right now. This is God's word. We will either respond in belief, in faith, or we will respond in unbelief. 
say, well, I like some of what you say, but I don't like all of what you say. I like some of what Jesus says, but I don't like all of what Jesus says. And I don't like most of what Paul has to say, so I just don't even pay attention to him. We don't have that luxury, church. We don't have that luxury. The command has gone out. As many as you find, invite them to the wedding, both bad and good. So they did that, and they filled the banqueting hall. And they invited everyone they could find, both bad and both good. And verse 11 says, But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now remember what verse 10 says. Verse 10 says that they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. So the servants didn't distinguish. They didn't say, oh, that guy's a leper. Oh, that guy, he's got a criminal record. No. If they found him, they said, come. The king says, come, and they came. Criminal record, clean record, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, bad, and good. They all came. So they're all assembled in the banquet hall. And the king comes in to see the guest. And verse 11 says, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Uh Uh-oh. The lesson here is really simple. We complicate it. We try to figure out, who's that guy that got kicked out? Is he a Jew? Is he a Gentile? Is he uh, pre? Is he post? Is he, uh, what, what does he represent? It's really quite simple who he represents. Unless we are clothed with the garments of another, garments only that the king will provide for us, we are not acceptable to sit at his table. We are not acceptable to come into his banquet hall. We are not acceptable to come to the wedding. Now it's almost 12 o'clock and I have a whole lot more to say. We've just kind of come to the climax of this message. And I'm not going to do it any justice if I try to rush through it, so I'm not going to do that. But what follows, understanding, understanding who this man is, understanding why not having on a wedding garment is so important. It is so important for you to understand this. It is so important for you to grasp this. It's so important that you must come back next week because we must finish this because this is the gospel. I'm, I'm, being, I'm really, I'm being serious. This is so important. This is so critical to your life. It's critical to your life. It's critical to the people that God has commanded you to go out and reach. 
If you don't, you can only preach to them the gospel that you have and the gospel that you know and the gospel that you understand. And if you don't know and you don't understand the gospel, you're not, pre- you're not helping them. You're preaching a lie. You're preaching something different. And we were never commanded to do anything but preach the gospel. Not another gospel, not a different gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And you need to understand how you came to be part of this wedding. And if you don't understand how you came to be part of this wedding, you're left to make up all kinds of imaginations and stories that might sound good to you, that might sound logical to you, but just because they sound good to you and logical to you does not make them true. Because you and I don't define the truth. God, in his word, has given us the truth. And we conform what we think, we conform what pleases us to this truth right here. We have to. And Jesus is speaking this parable, literally, now, just probably, two or three days before he is going to be taken to be crucified. And he is giving this parable of the kingdom because he knows how vitally important it is for those who have ears to hear, to hear this gospel message and to understand what he, the king, is commanding them to do and how they came to be who they are and to become part of this wedding. So we have two verses left, four verses left, that really are, this is where it all comes together in this parable. So we're going to stop right there. And next week, we'll pick up at verse 11. But here's something I can tell you for sure. No one entered into that wedding but they were not first given a garment to put on. A garment was made available to them. A garment was provided. Now, obviously, this guy we see here, he didn't do anything with the garment. And this is the lesson we're going to talk about next week. This is the truth we're going to talk about next week. We're going to, we're going to look at and understand why that is so significant. But I will, I will just say this, that this parable is consistent with the gospel of grace that was preached from Genesis 1-1 to the very last word of Revelation. It's the same gospel of grace that Paul writes about in his letter to the Romans when he says we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. For no man is justified by the deeds of the flesh. We talked about this today. What does it mean to be justified? In Sunday school, we talked about this. Justified. Just if I'd never sinned. 
you and I cannot justify ourselves. We are justified by God and by God alone. God alone justifies us. And when God justifies us, we are justified. And it is just if I'd never sinned. That is so that is so unbelievable because it goes contrary to our very nature as a sinner. As a sinner, we don't want to be justified that way. As a sinner, we want to justify ourselves. Believe it or not, we really want to practice good works and be acceptable by our works. That's what we want to do as sinners. But they're really not good. There's nothing good about them. It's really just about justifying ourselves. Have you ever noticed how tempted we are to justify ourselves? Someone challenges you on something, what is the first thing you want to do? You want to justify yourself. Someone accuses you, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to justify yourself. Do you know how much time we spend trying to justify ourselves? You know what God has done? God has given us his word, God has put in place the law. God has, has, has revealed to us this truth. Try as you might, you will never be able to justify yourself. Though you keep trying, you keep failing. Because ultimately, I might think I won the argument at the end of the day. I might feel justified at the end of the day. But the reality is, before God, I'm not. Before God, I lose the argument every time. Before God, I can never justify myself this is one of the most important lessons of this parable we cannot we will not justify ourselves we can only be justified by God and that is my friends a gift of grace so let's get ready to come to the table And if you looked in the mirror and you said, hmm, do I see myself just as if I'd never sinned? The answer would be probably not. Unless you see yourself in Christ. And the only proper way for you to see yourself is to see yourself in Christ. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if you profess faith in Jesus, the only way you can properly see yourself is to see yourself in Christ. If you see yourself any other way, it's not good. So I want to encourage you, as you come to this table, trust in Jesus. He is the justifier. Christians come to the table.
that picture up one day. This table represents our hope. In fact, it represents our only hope. Jesus is our only hope. And we often say this, you know, uh, trusting in Jesus is kind of like falling in love. We want to we say there's formulas, do this and this will happen. But the reality is, even when Paul writes in, in his letter to the Romans, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a true statement. But it's a true statement in the context that Paul wrote his whole letter in, that it's our faith that saves us. Jesus said from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul wasn't just talking about, look, if you say these magic words, you'll be saved. 
Paul is saying, faith that's in your heart will come out of your mouth. People lie all the time. They say things that aren't true. Jesus said, a good tree will produce good fruit. How do you trust in Jesus? Trust Him. Yeah, but what are the steps to that, Pastor Jeff? There are no steps to that. Trust Him. Husband, how do you love your wife? Love her. Well, yeah, but tell me how. Love her. Wife, how do I love my husband? Love him. Yeah, but tell me how to do that. Love him. You and I both know what love looks like. Guess what? We know what faith looks like. The Bible tells us what faith looks like. And if you will trust Jesus, you will be saved. Sometimes people ask, how come you don't do an altar call every Sunday? This is an altar call. Every Sunday we have an altar call. It's the preaching of the gospel. It is the message of God's word. From beginning to end, the message of God's word, the message of the gospel is come to God. Trust in him. Be saved in him for he is your only hope. There's not a bunch of hoops you need to jump through. There's not a magic dance you need to do or a magic song you need to sing. You need to trust Jesus. And when you do that, let that faith come out of your mouth. Testify. Testify of your trust. But let your life also testify. Let your actions, let your deeds, along with your words, testify that you speak from the abundance of your heart and the abundance of your heart is faith in God. That is only possible by His grace and that is only made possible through Jesus Christ. And this is what we celebrate when we come to this table week in and week out. So Father, we thank You. We celebrate the Son We celebrate the marriage of the Son to His bride. We thank You and we celebrate the reality that we who trust in Jesus are that bride. We are that people that Jesus came to take for Himself. And we have been redeemed by His blood. We have been joined to Him as one in Christ. And to guarantee that you have made that so, you gave your body and you poured out your blood and you put in us your spirit. God, we are so very thankful. God, help us to be a people that lives always with our heart, not only filled with gratitude, but filled with faith. So that when we open our mouth, faith would come out. Thanksgiving would come out. Love and peace and joy. And everything that speaks of Christ would come out. We fail constantly. But you are so faithful. You are so loving and you are so patient. 
that you mold us and shape us and conform us to the very image of the Son of God. And we thank you that you are doing that by your Spirit to your glory. Take the bread and take the cup. God alone is able. Christ alone is able to present you faultless before His glory. And He will do that because that is what He has promised. Go in the grace and the peace of the Lord. Have a great day.